Hello, my name is Dr. Marlana Karenga, and I'm on the tightrope. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where, as you know, we engage in a love and justice-infused dialogue on ever-increasingly tough issues. And we are so grateful to have Dr. Cornell West as uh, our partner in crime. My name is Trisha Rose, and here is Dr. Cornell West with us. How are you doing, Dr. West? I'm always blessed to be in dialogue with you, my dear sister. Oh, yes. Well, we have fantastic times talking, but today we have a very special guest who I'm going to graciously and thrillingly allow you to do one of your classic introductions of. Turning it over to you, Dr. West. Well, we are very especially blessed today because we have a living legend. We have a towering intellectual. We have a freedom fighter of longevity and consistency for over 60 some years. Now I know we're gonna zero in on the legacy of Malcolm X. I know that we're going to talk about conversations beginning of, that uh, our dear brothers had with Malcolm X, but we're talking about my dear brother, Malana Karenga. He's a master teacher, a keeper of a tradition that goes all the way back to Africa, which is where the species emerged, the critiques of Eurocentrism that has been fundamental to his work and his witness. He is the 14th child and the seventh son of a Baptist minister and a tenant farmer of great dignity. And of course, his mother of great preciousness and dignity. That Malana Karenga is very special to me because he was the first person actually to have me reflect on prophesied deliverance that came out 40 years ago. And his intellectual contributions to the movement that uh, we really don't have uh, a time to go into, but we can begin with the introduction to Black Studies, which is a classic that helped lay bare the discipline of Black Studies. His work on Egyptian ethics and, and Ma'at ethics and the way in which it is a precursor to what we understand Hebrew scripture, what we understand the Greeks, trying to get us to think outside of Europe without trashing Europe, building on the best of Europe, but building on the best of Northern Africa and African cultures and civilizations. So his work on the Hoosier becomes very important in this regard. He's also the hardest working person I know in the academy, that his weekly contributions to the LA newspaper, Centennial Black newspaper, high quality work that I, I, I hope that people get a chance to read. His unbelievable scholarship, two PhDs, this brother got political science and in philosophy and ethics. And the latter one was over 800 page dissertation. I was blessed actually to be, be, be part of that process many years ago, just like I'm very blessed to write 
the introduction to the best work ever written on Malcolm X, which is the book that we are waiting Maulana Karenga to finish. Because what I read already was hundreds of pages, the highest quality engagement with the greatest freedom fighter in the 20th century, Malcolm X. I know I'm taking time. I can oh, go take on it. and on and on. Of course, I want to salute Sister Tia Moya, who is Please. his magnificent companion standing not beside but alongside him his weekly gatherings at his cultural center where after 60 some years he's still on fire still fresh and we won't talk about how old he is but you wouldn't know he'd been around for 79 years because mm. he has the schedule of a 29 year old why because Malana Karenga got a love for truth, a love for justice, and a love for black people, mm. and especially black working and poor people. So he and I have had chances to go back and forth. We always, we agree, we disagree, we learn from each other, we wrestle and so forth and so on. That's beautiful, but most importantly, it is that when you are the living legend that he is, when you, when he has the wisdom and analysis and vision that he has, we must listen. And that's why we're gonna take our time today. We mm. gonna engage, we gonna wrestle, and most importantly, we gonna keep our focus on something bigger than us, which is the truth and the justice and the freedom for all people disproportionately focusing on black people that has set at the very center of the master teacher and keeper of the tradition, Maulana Karenga, going from Parsonsburg, Maryland, way off in the boonies on the plantation, <laughs> and made his way at 18 years old to Los Angeles, another kind of plantation, but we won't get into that right now. But in Los Angeles at UCLA, <laughs> and lo and behold, here he is with us, Brother Maulana Karenga. I could go on and on. Thank Ooh. you so much being here with us. We salute you, man. Asante, you're much too kind. Also, I, I would be remiss if I did not reference my university. I am also professor and chair of the Department of African Studies yes, at California yes. State University. I would Absolutely. also be remiss if I did not mention my organizational uh, affiliation, which is the organization US, which is one of the major black power organizations, right? And I, I would just like to say, my work is on the whole of Africa, not Northern Africa. I don't separate Egypt from Africa. That's one of the things I did in my dissertation was brought Egypt into conversation with the rest of Africa to reaffirm the African character of Egypt. And also the whole idea about the Eastern shore. I feel good on that because my mother and father, my parents, as well as my teacher reminded us, this is the place for Harry Tubman and Frederick Douglass. So there's a legacy to live up to, right? That we, we, we had to do something for the race. They, they were race people, conscious. So they say, you got to do something for your family and for your race, you know, something of value, something beyond what we see here. And that's why I can reach out, uh, Cornell, beyond Parsonburg, which I, which I praise, you know, <laughs> it's a very important source for Absolutely. me, you know, because Absolutely. it teaches me a different kind of way of life. Uh, you'd be surprised the different kind of experiences I've had from the farm uh, to the cities, right? And, and, and as a migrant worker, as a student, 
as a post office worker. I've done a lot of things. And in that, I've always met people that enriched my life and my conversation, my conception of what it means to be an African and human in the world. And that's, that's the important thing. So I, I just wanted to make those points, I think. And I also, I want to give homage to Timoya Karinga, who is um, an intellectual on right. She has an MA in ancient African archeology, span did her uh, thesis on the divine wife, women in power in ancient Egypt. And so she's my co-combatant, my collaborator, my co-worker. So I just wanted to pay homage. And again, praise to my organization, the intellectual uh, source, the, uh, the intellectual space that they gave me and the material support they gave me to bring us to celebrate this year our 55th anniversary of the organization. Uh, and our motto is for this year, unbudging blackness for 55 years. <laughs> mm. Well, brother, as you know, I was blessed to be there on the 50th. Yes. I was blessed to be there on the 55th. That's right. And, and I'll, I'll be there honest on the, to bring I'll be you there always. on the 60th that we can live, we can keep living. I'll be we there have on to. the 60th. We have to go as long as Du Bois and Anna Julia Cooper. You know, we owe that to them. We got a legacy to bear. But share with us, our dear brother, your sense of calling, your sense of vocation as intellectual, as activist, as organization founder and leader, and as someone who is trying to get us to understand the legacy of Malcolm X as it relates to 2021 with the implosion of the American empire with neo-fascism escalating. Appreciate what you've asked if I understand correctly. I start from the fundamental assumption that this is our duty to know our past and honor it, to engage our present and improve it, and to imagine a whole new world and to forge it in the most ethical, effective, and expansive way. So I, I was working on my, uh, first doctorate at UCLA and the movement was emerging and we left, some of us left, you know, some stayed and some left. And I, I told my left, Asante, who was, you know, a good friend of mine and colleague, I told him I was glad he stayed because somebody had to maintain the institution. But I wanted to respond to Mary McLeod Bethune's call. She said, knowledge is the prime need of the hour, but people want to know what are you gonna do with your knowledge? And she said, it's up for us to have that knowledge to discover the dawn and share it with our youth and the masses of our people who needed most. So I left and I developed my philosophy, Kawaida, out of which I created Kwanzaa and then Guzo Saba and established my organization, Us. By 24, I had laid out the fundamental framework for my life and I have pursued that path since. I met Malcolm, Minister Malcolm X in 1962. He certainly uh, was, is very important to us, uh, to my development of my philosophy, to my conception of an organic activist intellectual, right? I borrowed from him his concept of cultural revolution, his emphasis on education, his emphasis on Pan-Africanism, his emphasis on third world uh, unity, all those things, armed defense, right? The whole idea we have the right and responsibility to defend ourselves by any means necessary. And I want you to just say this, this is a rich concept. It is not a question of violence. When you do that, what happens is you give Martin Luther King, usually comparing with, uh, contrast with Martin Luther King. See, violence is intentional force, unjustifiable, unethical, intentional force to harm or kill, right? 
That's not what Malcolm is talking about. When Malcolm said freedom by any means necessary, as I read him and as he wrote and talked, he says, it depends upon the European, it's the oppressor. It's the same thing Nelson Mandela said. And I bring Malcolm into conversation in my book with the major liberation fighters of his time. So you can see how his conversation is in harmony with this conversation. So freedom by any means necessary, what does the oppressor, what does the oppressor force us to do, right? Because if he stopped oppressing us, we didn't even have this question, right? Second though, and this is the part that people miss, when you say freedom by any means necessary, you mean that the people struggling must be able to make the sacrifice, engage in the service and the work that is necessary for freedom. Freedom by any means necessary means there's a responsibility on us too. Because guess what? As we say in Kaweda, the oppressor is responsible for our oppression, but we're responsible for our liberation. And part of our responsibility is to hold ourselves, but also them responsible also and accountable. And so that's how we kind of, so I met Malcolm in 62. We had invited him to UCLA to come and speak. And the people were like overwhelmed by the first they resisted it, but we finally got it in, with the Black Student Union. And then he invited me to come and hear him lecture that night at the uh, mosque. And then when I finished that, we got in a conversation. He said, why don't you come and let's have dinner together. And he took me over to the, uh, brought me, asked me to come over rather, it's later he would take me home. But he brought me, uh, asked me to come there. And we stayed up in the late at night. It was past time when the buses ran. And the buses ran like every two hours or every one hour, I forgot. So he said, how are you gonna get home? I, I don't have a car, I, we got that income. He said, well, let me drive you. And he drove me home himself without guards or anything. And we talked and we kept in correspondence. And whenever he came in, I would go and talk to him and meet him. And he also asked me when the, the police shot down Ronald Stokes, uh, 27 men, he asked me to emcee one of the programs. And I, I always remember that at the Garden of Prayer Baptist Church, because the major churches wouldn't let him in there. Eventually, mm. Dr. Kilgore, of course, was the one preacher. And you know, you remember Dr. Thomas Kilgore? Oh, yes. He's absolutely. a towering figure, right? Absolutely. Uh, Second Baptist Church, right? Second Baptist Church. And uh, in fact, I worked with him uh, in uh, a Black United Front called the Black Agenda. I was his vice chair for that agenda. So I have a lot of respect for him. So we, get, we, we started talking and then we kept in touch. And I was glad when I started a recent research uh, that in the Schomburg, they had a letter that I had written him. So that was an extra uh, impetus to continue my work that I'd been working on from time to time over the years. Indeed, indeed, indeed. How does one keep alive the spirit, courage, vision, willingness to serve and sacrifice of a Malcolm X, not by fetishizing or in any way uh, uh, deifying him, mm -hmm. but recognizing him for the greatness that he exemplified and embodied in a moment in which there's just so much, you know, the marketizing and commodifying and sanitizing and sterilizing and deodorizing of Malcolm. Mm -hmm. The first and most important thing, given the trend in the academy, is to not reductively translate Malcolm's life and work as his flaws. One of the things that people feel they need to do 
is to focus on what they assume is his flaws, which I have a problem with if we keep talking. I'm sure it would have come up that I would challenge, for example, his conversation with the Algerian ambassador. I mean, that's, well, anyhow, so, so one of the things we have to do is not reductively translated. Don't reduce one's humanity to one's flaws. If you're gonna do it, do their greatness and their flaws. But mm -hmm. we don't like King or energy, or Cooper, or Fannie Lou Hamer, or Ella Baker, or Frederick Douglass, or Malcolm X, or Messenger Muhammad, or Martin Luther King. We don't like them because they did something wrong. We don't learn from that in the same way we learn from the other. The best we learn from that is not to do it, but what he did, that's a library of lessons, right? And we have mm -hmm. to study that library. We have to read it critically. And that's important. And so don't pretend that humanity is reduced to its flaws. Let's give the whole picture of Malcolm. And if you're gonna talk about him in his biography, talk about his achievement as well as the flaws. But the dominant society creates janitorial history, bottom feeding history, looking for flaws, looking for stench and stain and bringing it up as if it's some great revelation, as if that's why we're studying these people. Give that to the oppressor. That's what he does. Give me what you think. Do some conceptual generations. Give us new ways to understand our humanity, to understand our Africanness in the world. How do we understand and assert ourselves in the world in these critical times? And that's what I'm doing with Malcolm's book and why I think mm -hmm. it's so different and you right. Because the first of all, I'm talking about Malcolm in his own words, and I'm not imposing a deconstructionist framework or interpretive practice to it. I'm talking about Malcolm in the context of his time, using his own word, bringing him in conversation with other activist intellectuals in the Black community and in the world African community. That's what I'm doing. And so I think it's very important for us first to give us the whole picture of him and to focus on why we're writing about him, not by his flaws, but because of his ongoing, massive, expansive, ever rich understanding of life, his service, his sacrifice, his dedication, his discipline. That's what I'm looking for. That's what impressed me. I, I could find flaws in everybody, including myself. So, hey, I, I don't have to drop a book on my head to do that. Right? <laughs> so, what we need to do is ask, and guess what? It's easier to attack people, and believe me, I know it, right, than to read my work or to read his work. So that's the second thing. We are obligated. Malcolm said this. You know, he said my three programs, my three fundamental, the three fundamental aspects of my program. In 62, he said this. He, he developed it early, but he said this in a Michigan paper. He said, it's wake up, clean up, and stand up. Now, people say, oh, I'm woke, you know, but they say, no, they say, stay woke. But if you're not already woke, you can't stay woke. So what is the criteria? Did anybody ever lay that out? What does it mean to be woke, right? So Malcolm tells us to be woke. And that's why I, I translate what he said, wake up, clean up, and stand up, and gave it the intellectual categories of critical consciousness, moral grounding, and transformative struggle. So wake up is critical consciousness. Clean up is moral grounding. And stand up is transformative struggle. So what does he mean? This is what I'm saying, Cornell and Trish. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Malcolm, if we're going to save him and we're going to mm, get the fruit that he has grown 
that we can consume and flower with and come into the fullness of ourselves with, then we need to learn what he said in various ways. And so look at this critical consciousness, right? Okay, you know, what does that mean to be critically conscious? It means, of course, aware, but it means aware on a deep level. And the way I explain Malcolm's conversation is using the ancient Egyptian category Jair, which means deep thinking. And it's taken, the etymology of it is from a word that's used in the medical field. And it means to probe, right? And to probe, to discover, right? So it means probing, uh, discovery, diagnosis, prognosis, and prescription. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we probe? What do we discover? How do we evaluate what we discover? How do we interpret this meaning for our people? And then what do we prescribe out of that? That's mm. what Jair is about. And it's a Kawaita interpretation. I should tell you, this is a Kawaita, out of my own Kawaita framework that this is about. So I, I introduced five kinds of consciousness that are critical in Malcolm's writings and speeches. The first is religious consciousness for moral and spiritual grounding, right? But he says, of all our studies, history is best prepared to reward our research, best qualified to reward our research. He said, in fact, for us to have a clear grasp of our religious uh, uh, understanding and our spiritual grounding, we need history to know how we came to this point, this kind of thinking that we're doing. Where did that come from? Ideas don't drop from the sky. They don't grow from the ground. They don't float in from the sea. Where did these come from? Malcolm said, look in history for that. We not only need religious consciousness, we need historical consciousness. And that historical consciousness gives us, as we say in Kawita, lessons we can learn, right? If we study it in order to learn its lesson. Second, to absorb its spirit of human possibility. Third, to extract and emulate its models of human excellence and achievement. And finally, to practice a morality of remembrance. For as Fannie Lou Hayman said, there are two things we should all care about never to forget where we came from and always praise the bridges that carried us over. So there's mm -hmm. religious consciousness, there's historical consciousness, then there's cultural consciousness, breaking the catechism of impossibilities that the oppressors taught us, having a, what he calls a cultural revolution to recapture, recapture our heritage and to use our culture as a weapon in our, weapon in our liberation struggle. He comes in conversation here with Cabral and Ture, which argues that national liberation itself is a culture act, right? Because culture gives us the basis and it teaches us that we do in fact have a culture of resistance and that we have a culture of bearing witness as the ancient Egyptian said in Maji, we have a culture of bearing witness to truth and setting the scales of justice in their proper place among those who have no voice. And then, of course, social consciousness. Here, when we get a chance, we're going to talk to you about nationalist, pan-Africanist, third world consciousness, and finally, reflective consciousness. Malcolm said, the logic of the oppressed cannot be the logic of the oppressor if we want liberation. And I say that if we need a logic of liberation, we need a language to inform that logic of liberation. And that's where Kawaita comes in. Well, wow. You got some rich, rich, rich things on the table. I'm telling you, so many layers, so many registers, so many dimensions. Of right. Trisha, I know, yeah, you, yeah. I know you won't jump in because Lord I, have I have mercy. A, it, 
in in light of the you know the magnitude of what you're saying this is a very small question <laughs> so, uh, so forgive me for that to begin no, with but um but i want to try to i want to go back to what i fundamentally think i agree with you about but i want to sort of see if there's a place where it might not hold as much water as it as we might think so this emphasis on finding flaws right in black leaders in particular right we see it with a Malcolm, we see it with Martin, we see it with pretty much everybody who's mm -hmm. been a freedom fighter. So I, I see that point wholeheartedly. That said, you also rightfully emphasize the need for critical thinking, right? So you don't want to overlook it, but you also don't want it to become some big aha moment that we've discovered flaws in, in these great human beings. But what do we do when the framework of our extraordinary freedom fighters is based in social ways of thinking that we might have political and social problems with today, say, for example, which might be different than their personal flaws. But what do we do with, say, patriarchal frameworks or homophobic frameworks that might have been the norm, not to value, not to mm -hmm. negatively judge them, mm -hmm. but to say, what do we do going forward? How do we carry what's productive, but at the same time offer, you know, an extended critique of what might be some of the bases of what they're up to? Because it seems to me that's one of the tensions that that is implicit in, in I think, your important insight. Does, does that make sense? Oh, it's, it's an excellent one, and it's a necessary question, always. We've got to always be able to interrogate or to question ourselves. It's called, in, 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 in Machin philosophy, or Kawita Machin philosophy, it's called Neznez Ken, which means courageous questioning. And that courageous questioning means always be willing to ask is what the stand we're taking, is it still viable? So when I created Kawita, I translated it as being based on two things, tradition and reason. So first I get the tradition. And then I ask myself, in my day and my time, in my new morally sensitive and critical way, is this true now? Does this hold true? Is this right? This is how we change from the patriarchal character of our own organization, us, right? In which we believe that men should dominate, right? But we change it. Now, a lot of times people don't want to give me credit for changing, but like, actually, I changed before a lot of other people changed. But I, the women in the organization compelled us to live up to our own doctrine. So that gave me a model. So our model, the third principle, they used the third principle. They, write, they wrote an article criticizing our practices. And they said, the Ujima says, you know, to make our brothers and sisters problem. Our problem is solve them together, that we are to build and maintain our community together. We can't do that if only half people are involved or if people think they are more than others, et cetera. So they did the critique. So we found it in our own tradition, the basis for changing. If it's imposed from outside, it doesn't work. It's like the conversation about a female clearidectomy, right? Uh, it's the continent of Africans say, yes, we should criticize. But the women there and the people must be able to become self-conscious agents of their own life and liberation. And they must say no, and they must break it. Whenever you try to impose something, it doesn't work. So now I just wanted to say it's a, it's a full question. So what I'm going to say again is this. We've got to struggle consciously against ourselves, against that in us, which is in contradiction to our best values and our most ethically sensitive and depthful thought. 
That's our commitment, tradition, and reason. Everything we used to do is not right. Everything our heroes and heroines used to do, used to think is not right. That's what we come in with. But we ask, what is in this philosophy that actually can actually use, be used to argue against the wrongness of some other position? And then mm. also we say, my, listen to how I define my philosophy. Kawaida is an ongoing synthesis of the best of African thought and practice in constant exchange with the world, in constant exchange. So we want to have the best of what it means to be both African and human. So we can learn from the world. We don't, we can absorb from the world, but we're not absorbed by the world. But we can ask, how do we bring these things into harmony to represent the best of our thinking? So uh, if you mean that about this self, uh, sometimes people call it self-interrogation, but I don't want to use it because it's too hard, but self-questioning, if we can remember that we are morally obligated to constantly question the value, the strength, the meaning, uh, and especially the uh, effect it has on people. So we mm -hmm. always have to ask about harm and benefit. How does it help the people? Or as Malcolm said, how does it benefit the people? Because that's what he said about religion. Religion is not real if it doesn't benefit the people, right? If any religion, I'm, I'm a freedom fighter. Any religion that won't let me fight for freedom of my people, I say to hell with that religion. He said, but I'm for a, a religion of freedom. So I'm for mm -hmm. a practice of freedom. Mm -hmm. And if I'm seriously for a practice of freedom, then I cannot inhibit anybody else, right? I must, in fact, reaffirm the dignity and divinity of each human being. This is our gift from ancient Egypt, from Maat. We're the first ones who introduced this as early 2140 BCE, that humans in the image of the divine came from the very person of the divine and then introducing the concept of human dignity called shepesu, uh, which is an inherent worthiness that is transcendent, equal in all and inalienable, transcendent of all social biological categories like race, class, gender, sexuality, age, ability, religion, race, it's, I mean, nationality, etc. Then equal in all, no one has more, neither male nor female, neither this person nor that person. And finally, inalienable, that is, it can't be taken away from us because it's inherent and you can't even give it away. Mm. So yes, to answer your question, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are two answers to that question the first one and the second one's yes <laughs> oh that's a rich 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 yes, yes. now remember yes, Malcolm yes. said Thank that you. at the very end of the autobiography he says that uh, I'm for truth no matter who is for or against it I'm for justice no matter who's for or against it that's right I'm oh, a I'm human sorry. being please, first please. and I'm a black man and I'm a Muslim so you get that revolutionary humanism yeah. that goes beyond Eurocentrism goes beyond any kind of centrism really, but it's based on the best of the legacy of Africa. And yeah. it begins on the African side, the black side, the chocolate side, but embraces the whole world. And I've always understood judo brother as a revolutionary humanist who takes us all the way back to the African origins. You know, I tend to, I, I tend to get stuck in Jerusalem and Athens, you see. Mm -hmm that I, I tend to get stuck with, with Socrates and Jesus. And you always want to say, oh, but Brother West, Brother West, Brother West. 
Don't you realize what was going on in Africa constituted the foundations of the talk about what was happening with Plato and talk about image of God that you get in Hebrew scripture? And we've been wrestling with this for many, many, many years. And I yeah. appreciate that in this way. But let me say this, that where we are now, where we have to have a critique of empire, we've got to have a critique of predatory capitalism, and we've got to have a critique of the black bourgeoisie, the best and the worst. Mm -hmm. if, if, if given that challenge and given the debate that you all had with the Black Panther Party, where it was often said, the Panther Party was talking about capitalism and imperialism and so forth, and you all were talking about cultural nationalism, how do you respond to that earlier critique? Where are you now? And we need some clarification mm -hmm. so that people have a sense of what was really going on in the 60s as well as what's really going on now in terms of empire right. and capitalism. Right, so first of all, let, let's try to be categorically precise. One of the most important things for us to do is attempt, though we don't always do it, we need categorical preciseness here. The first way we see this is that the Panthers didn't offer a critique of me and the organization. Uh, they offered a condemnation. There is no Panther document alive that does a critique of Kaweeda philosophy or does concede that we were on every list that the white man put them on. Every list that FBI had them on, we were on. We were considered a threat to the government just like them. For them to say, you know, like we are culture nationalists and that doesn't mean we're revolutionary. That's, a, that's, a, that's what we call theoretical clumsiness. They are confusing an area of social emphasis with a quality of motion and practice that they're giving themselves in self-congratulatory ways. For example, what they were talking was political nationalism. I was talking culture nationalism. In a minute, I'm gonna tell you what the difference is that. But see, when you compare cultural nationalism to revolutionary nationalism, you haven't said anything but congratulate yourself and say you're revolutionary, but what kind of revolutionary is it? There are four fundamental, I did my first dissertation on this, by the way. So the, there are four basic kinds of nationalism that we talk about. That is religious nationalism like the nation, economic nationalism like core and doing its final black power period, cultural nationalism like us and political nationalism like the Republic of New Africa, right? So. What that means, those people stress those things as primary. I stress culture as primary. Du Bois in an article right after the um, March on Washington, he said, I'm afraid that black people so interested in integrating with the dominant society, they'll forget their great gift they bring. And it would be as if they haven't thought of these things, these major issues that affect humanity and this country. And if they keep, eventually they'll feel more akin to people in Germany than people in Africa. And look what has happened, right? We have this conversation where we can't even say we're black. We can say everybody else is. We don't want the people you can be too, too much of. You can't be too Japanese, you can't be too Jewish, you can't be too Chinese, but you can be too black. Y'all you, you talk, talking too black right now. What is that about? <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dr. Karanga, let, let me ask you a, a question about culture here, because, you know, I've struggled in my career to to figure out what to do with the what I understood as the history of black culture as cultural resistance for the most part. 
but also what happens to black culture when it becomes part of a mainstream society, which has happened across the last 40 or 50 years. It's share with us and, and our listeners, if you would, what you think of black American culture in particular, I'm, I'm asking, and the, the question of its radical legacies and whether or not it still has that existence and potential. I mean, can we say about black, uh, you know, youth culture today or popular culture today that it serves the same kinds of resistant forces that I understand you to be referring to in terms of the black radical tradition? And then, you know, a second question is if this tradition does exist, what was it that it provoked you to basically create Kawita and Kwanzaa and the like if, if we already have this traditional sort of resistive capacity and, and practice. Oh, San, uh, thanks so much for that, Asante San. If you read my writings, I divided culture into three basic kinds. Mass culture, which you were talking about, that is dominant society culture, which is consumerist culture, which is faddish, which is transitional, which is moved by consumption and faddism, right? Moving on all the time. Communal culture is the second one. That's the culture our people create just to live. Their live experience is a culture activity, right? And so they sing and they dance and they write and they read and they go to church and to mosque and to temple and they do things and create. Then there's national culture. That's where the activist organic intellectual comes in. So when you ask me, why did I create Kawaita? It was to provide a revolutionary culture philosophy by which people could understand themselves and assert themselves in dignity-affirming, life-enhancing, and world-preserving ways, right? I believe what Bethune said, Dr. Bethune, that we had to take this knowledge and make it applicable to life, right? And so there's always development. No matter how great we feel we are or we're in the path, there's still something to do. And no matter how developed we are, we are not at the end. We have not come into the fullness of ourselves. What would we look like without oppression? What would we look like without oppression? We would be multidimensional. We could write, we could sing, we could do science, we could do math, we could do so many things, right? Because now we don't have to, we don't have toil, we have labor, we have work. And work is a self, toil is just for survival activity, right? Compensation for, in order to survive, but work is a self-defining, self-developing, self-confirming activity. Mm. I'm mm. confirmed in my teaching. I work, I don't <laughs> labor. So let me just tell you my principle. Yeah. Each yeah. people, each people and culture is a unique and equally valid and valuable way of being human in the world. I repeat, each people and culture is a unique and equally valid and valuable way of being human in the world. And they have the right and responsibility to speak their own special culture truth and to make their own unique contribution to the forward flow of human history, and especially to how this society is reconceived and reconstructed. Also, I believe that we must constantly struggle for common ground in the midst of our diversity, because we must build the good world together we all want and deserve to live in. And finally, I think that if we're talking about diversity and respect for each other, we must commit ourselves to an ethics of sharing, shared good in the world, common ground good in the world. That's what we have to do. Mm. Well, wow, wow, that's beautiful. 
Beautiful. It, it's not, but you did. It's the well, universalism, the internationalism, but it is fundamentally immersed and grounded in the best of African civilizations, the best of Black culture, and the best of what we have created in the face of the multiple catastrophes that have bombarded us. Yes. Down through the years. One of the most important things we can do is to dialogue with African culture, not just ancient, but also modern, not just continental, but also African-American, Caribbean, the world African community. And what we, by that dialogue, I mean, asking questions and seeking answers to the fundamental issues confronting us and humankind. What does it mean to be human? How do we come into the fullness of ourselves? How do we define community? How do we define goodness? What is our right relationship with the environment, right? How should we, how should we view the stranger, right? How, how, how should we treat immigrants, refugees, people seeking asylum? What does Africa have to say about that? We know what Israel has to say. We know what Arabia has to say. We know what Greece has to say. We know what India has to say. We know what China has to say. But what does Africa have to say? But, That's but, my life's work. That's so, my so, life's work. So what do, you, what do you make, though, of the fact that the nations you describe, right, are functioning as nation states, right? Whereas Black America in particular is not functioning as a nation state. And in fact, it shares, I mean, I, I would say, and I, maybe the two of you would, you know, disagree with me wholeheartedly, <laughs> but that, you know, African-Americans are very American. And we're, we're other things too, but we're also very American. Oh, that's true, right? that's true, that's true. In, in many, many ways. Therefore, we are actually part of this project, even as we're also despised by it and destroyed by it and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so there's there's a complexity there, because when you, you know, when you say we we hear, you know, what all of these countries feel about X, which in the yes. case you were giving mm -hmm. was you know, immigration or whatever it is, right. you're presupposing something about black America that I'm not sure black America presupposes about itself. Well, let's let's be honest. Even when people claim they're speaking for the people, they should know that there's a variety of voices, right? right? And what we're doing is trying to create a discourse that will reach the maximum amount of people so that something of value can be served. Martin Luther King, I was going to say this earlier, but now I'm going to say it again. Martin Luther King is pointing to what I'm talking about when he said this. The first night at the Montgomery Improvement Association meeting, 55, he says, so let us struggle that years from now, historians will have to say there lived a great people, a black people who through their struggle introduced, injected a new meaning and morality in the veins of civilization. This is our task and overwhelming responsibility. I believe that, I think that's real. So that we're in America and the continental African is in Ghana or Zimbabwe, or the Caribbean is in Jamaica or Haiti, doesn't matter. It's still the question, what is the best of our thought? It represents us. It's not enough to claim America, right? Jews are Americans. Do they ever talk about, well, you know, we're American and, you know, even though Israel is there and then we really are in America, they don't do that. 
They ask what is Jewish culture has to say about this. To Chinese, to Japanese, all of them do that, the Armenians. We're the only ones made to question the relevance of our origins. And that's yeah, why but, Malcolm but, said, I'm sorry. But some of those categories are different. I mean, the Jewish people are also a, pra a set of, you know, a, 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 a religious practice. They're not just a people in the way you're describing blackness across time and space. No, but they're ethnicity. They're an ethnicity. Jews are an okay. ethnicity. Because some All Jews right. are never going to go to Israel. They think Israel is a colonial state and they don't speak Hebrew, mm -hmm. right? But they still call Jews. So, 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 and we as black people, mainly Christian, I mean, I, I gave you Martin Luther King. I didn't even get into Islam. I didn't get into <laughs> my true. tradition, That's right? True. I'm just talking from the Christian perspective right there. If you go back <laughs> off that, we got a problem, you know? So I, I just, <laughs> see, what they do is make us strip pieces from our identity till we don't exist anymore. And we mm. don't belong to anything because we don't belong to ourselves. Mm. We have to mm. first reaffirm our own dignity. We who gave mm. the world the concept of dignity mm. and divinity, we ought to at least admit that for ourselves and say mm. we have the right to exist. Mm. I have an obligation. One of the reasons I struggle is not only for my organization and for the principles I believe in, but because my mother put so much faith in me, my father, because of the struggle of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, Anna Judith Cooper, Fannie Lou Hamer, Malcolm X, Martin King, Ella Baker, all those, Septima Clark, Joseph Lowry, C.T. Vivian, rest of them, right? All of them. What would I look like walking away from the battlefield before the struggles won? And mm -hmm. I enjoy this. Malcolm, Martin Luther King says it's a bit of a beautiful struggle. I think it's a good struggle. It's a hard, difficult, demanding, dangerous, and even deadly struggle. But I choose to struggle. Mm -hmm. And all I'm asking, Tricia and Cornell, is that we value ourselves and that we study ourselves and that we give ourselves mm. the credit that we're due. Mm. Mm. That's it. And wow. I, I would end on two, two notes. One is that all that I've learned and been enriched and empowered and struggled with my dear brother, Maulana Karenga, that your name will, is part of the Pantheon, brother. People talk about Du Bois, C.L.R. James, they talk about Amy Suzanne, they talk about Sil Sylvia Winter, they talk about Hortense Spiller, they talk mm -hmm. about Tony Morrison, that Maulana Karenga is right, right there. Now, he's, he, we still disagree. See, I'm still tied to Maulana Karenga's father's Baptist tradition, yeah. Reverend Everett, you see. And I so respect that. that. And I know, because we 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 embracing each other in That's that right. way. You see, so we bringing Jesus <laughs> with us. Father and my mother. With us, Reverend Everett. I'm still, but at the same time, I can't conceive of myself without wrestling with the both the cherishing and the challenging, the unsettling and being unsettled mm -hmm. of my dear brother Malana Karenga. And I hope that people wrestle with this legacy of Malcolm X in such a way at this particular moment that we can sustain the same kind of service, hope, vision, intellectual excellence, and most importantly, a love for the least of these. And by least of these, I don't mean spiritually least, I don't mean morally least, I don't mean culturally least, I mean those catching hell in Malcolm's language, because they have a dignity, they have a preciousness that ought to be the starting point 
of how we look at the world. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you both so much. This is a rich conversation. Uh, people are going to love this conversation. There's so much we need to, to take from it. And hopefully it'll be the beginning of more conversations like this. Uh, I look forward we, to it. Yes, you come back anytime. Thank you so much for honoring <laughs> us with your presence. And we're looking forward to that book on Malcolm, okay? Yes, thank you. Oh, All right. that's going to be a classic. It's going <laughs> to be a classic now. All right. It's, it's already you. a classic. <laughs> you're kind. Thank you. Wow, that was something. That was that was that was legendary, Cornell. No, that, that gave was, me a lot to think about. I that was one for the annals of history in terms yeah. of the world being exposed in so many ways. He's already been exposed in, in so many ways as well. But just for us and for our audience mm -hmm. to be able to have access to Maulana Karenga, it's a yeah. it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful. Yeah, you know, thing. sometimes you don't realize just how much you begin to accept certain terms of, of, of the framework you're in, right? So that's Absolutely. why I was pushing him so I could see, okay, well, you know, what, what are the presumptions of where we are? And there is a certain sense where black people are constantly being denied the capacity to be black, even as they're always constructed as so black, right? It's a, it's a, it's a complete true. contradictory uh, state of existence. That's anyway, so, so yeah. very true. I, I took a, I was, I'm looking forward to listening and watching that episode myself. Yeah, well, we'll listen to that over and over and over again. Yes, but indeed. it's always a blessing just to yes, uh, it is. be it with is. you, yep. Sister Trisha. It, I'm it telling is. you. Cornell, my pleasure always entirely. So I'm going to say goodbye to y'all out there. Cornell and I wish you well. We were thrilled you joined us on the tightrope as usual. Please. Follow us, complain, talk to us, make suggestions. <laughs> and hopefully you'll come to um, the Patreon world at www.patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Don't miss us. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>